choice, marriage, all these things, uh, you're with them. You're walking with them. But then at the same time, you're walking at their lowest of lows with death and pain and sickness and all those things. And what happens when all those pressures are hitting you constantly, and, and if you're a bridge between God and man, I mean, this is huge pressure all around you. If you're not called by God, you'll probably walk away. So you need to be chosen because it has to be a vocation and not a job. There's a big difference between the two. I mean, this is true of all pastors. It needs to be a vocation, something you feel called to. That in a real sense, you think God chose you to do this and set you out for this, rather a job. Which is why most pastors quit in two years. Because they weren't called to do it. They were doing it for other purposes. And when it got hard, they walked away. But if you're chosen, I mean, if God puts you there, it's a little bit harder to walk away. You're a little bit quicker to endure and be patient through suffering. And so these are the two requirements for the high priest. Um, and when these two things were met, God used them as an instrument for salvation. If you remember back to Exodus 29, at the very end of chapter 29, uh, he says, I'll consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. And then he does, so that they will know that I meet with them, that I am their God, they are my people, that I dwell among Israel, that they will know that I brought them out of the land of Egypt. He's saying this is a purpose. This is one way. So like you and I Christians, we're given all these tangible ways. Um, like we have baptism. So the New Testament would say, if you're a Christian, you need to be put in water, put underneath the water, and then brought up out of the water. And it's this weird kind of deal, but it's this tangible act that God has given us to communicate. This is life. This is who Christ is. This is who you are in the kingdom. We have communion every week. We take a piece of bread and dip it in grape juice, wine, whatever it may be. And in so doing, I mean, we taste, we feel, we hold it. We ingest who Christ is, what he's done. He's speaking these tangible ways. And when the high priest is operating the way he should be, salvation is given to his people. Um, now, we've got to be careful because the temptation here is to turn salvation into a, like a church word um, or, or like a junk drawer term where we use it a lot and it sounds real nice, but it really means nothing at the end of the day. I mean, how do you define that? Um, but salvation then and now has always been this real tangible Real life, everyday, messy, slow, confusing, mysterious process where men and women, real people with real problems. So Israelites had their share of problems. You and I have our share of problems with real failings, with real temptations to wander away, with real character flaws and shortcomings are somehow chosen by God and he works patiently, constantly to recreate their hearts, to transform them, to teach them how to love and worship him, how to love and take care of the people around them. So, like, you can never let salvation become this, like, otherworldly thing. So I, here's what gets me excited about ministry. You and I are part of the story of salvation, as crazy as it seems. Because I'm messed up and you're messed up. You know this about me and I know this about you. And we have all kinds of problems. And so, like, I was talking to a high school group last night. God doesn't pick really, he doesn't go for the celebrities often. If you go through the scriptures, he has a thing for murderers. Um, I mean, he's just kind of over and over again. He wants to, so, Corinthian church, he chooses what's lowly, what's not wise. But he takes a small group of people, unlikely candidates. And on Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays, he orchestrates all the events in our lives. So that you and I, whether we're aware of it or not, are being shaped and molded and pruned and grown 
to where we wake up in five years and we realize we're worshiping deeper than we had been worshiping. We're loving more purely than we had been loving. Salvation is this real thing where real humans, you and I, with real brokenness, with real addictions, with real sin, with real pain, with real darkness, find ourselves transformed by God's love. And that's what he was doing back then, and that's what he continues to do now in you and I. Now Hebrews is going to, like he has been, say let's look at the old and see what it's pointing towards. So here was the old priesthood, and now who does it seem to be pointing towards? Hugh Church answer? Jesus. Okay, verse 5 here. Hebrews 5, verse 5. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so what he does in this passage is he starts to prove, uh, both from Scripture and then from history, that Jesus, uh, in a sense, fulfills both of these two requirements. Um, that he is, again, the reality that these shadows were pointing towards, this old priesthood, was all along shouting out towards what God would do in Christ as he perfectly uh, fulfills these two requirements. And so we'll, we'll start with the first one here in verse 5 and verse 6. Uh, he goes to two scriptures, two Old Testament texts, both from the Psalms, that we've already seen here in Hebrews. In verse 5, he's saying Christ was chosen. And he quotes this, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, verse 7. And then 6, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4. When he's saying, You're just like the old priest had to be chosen. He was given this role directly from God. Um, so, as we have gone through Hebrews, we've seen lots of Old Testament texts. We've flipped to some of them. We haven't flipped to others. Um, but Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 are very, very, very important to Hebrews and to really his understanding of who Jesus was. So if you haven't, go read them. This week, write it down right now. Go read Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Digest it. Meditate on it. Let it enter into your imagination. Psalm 2, one of my favorite psalms, it's four scenes. So as you're reading it, there's four scenes right after each other. Like three or four verses each scene. The first scene is the nations plotting against God and his king. They're plotting. They're going to throw off his cords, his rule. The second scene, my favorite, God is in the heavens laughing. He's mocking them. God's up there like, okay, this is real, this is real cute. Y'all are going to fight me. Okay, this is going to be fun. Um, and then the third scene is the king talking. And the king says what? He has said, I'm a son. I'm his. And he's given me everything as my possession, as my inheritance. The fourth scene is a warning to the kings and the rulers. Serve him. Worship him. Don't kindle his wrath. The king rules, God has placed him. So Psalm 2 takes this idea of the king who would win God's victory in creation and calls him the son of God, which is seen as an important title to the book of Hebrews, the son of God. But then you have Psalm 110, which again has been quoted, but this is the first time verse 4 is quoted. Um, and Psalm 110 is talking about the same king, the Lord. David says to the Lord, he, he talks about the Lord of the Lord. Um, and he, he's talking about this king, and it's the same king with the same victory. Psalm 110 says all of God's enemies will be in a footstool under this king. Just, again, this idea of mocking. I mean, he's going to rest on top of them. 
after he defeats them. He defeats them, and then there's this promise that we see here in verse 4, that this king would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So the first thing that he's doing here is he's saying, look in scripture, God chose Jesus to be the high priest. This is not something that he arrogantly grasped at by himself. From ancient times, God has said, he's directly said, he's chosen Jesus to serve in this capacity. Now, the second thing he's doing here is real powerful. He's combining the role of the Son of God and the priest. He's saying that the promised king, from looking at the scriptures, looking at the promises, would be both the Son of God and a priest. Um, So let me throw a big word at you. Uh, Christology. Uh, which means kind of the study of who Jesus is, what his identity is, what his ministry is. Um, Now, the Christology of Hebrews, or how Hebrews sees Jesus, is all wrapped up in these two verses. Everything. He's the Son of God. He's the priest. This is the King. Son and priest. So the first few chapters, we've talked a lot about the Son of God. Well, guess what's coming in the next few chapters? A lot about the High Priest. This is Jesus to Hebrews. He's both the son and the priest as he looks back on these Old Testament scriptures. So this is the first way um, that Jesus fulfills the requirements. The second way, look in verse 7. In the days of his flesh, during his life, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Okay, now this is a reference to all of Jesus' life, but in particular, there seems to be echoes here of a certain story from the Gospels. And the story is the one we find when Jesus is in the, the Garden of Gethsemane, offering up loud, loud prayers and cries and supplications. Flip with me to Mark 14. So he's used scripture to prove this first point. Now he's going to use history. He's going to use an example from Jesus' life uh, to prove the point, um, too, that Jesus can, can sympathize with us, uh, that he has in a sense, experience the depth of human suffering. So last week, if you were with us, we we talked about this a bit, and we walked through the book of John and saw that in certain places Jesus was tired, uh, he was oppressed and misunderstood, he was betrayed, um, that at every point it seems like he was experiencing the depth of the brokenness that we live in day by day. Um, But there's still one story before we get to the cross that I think might prove this even more. And this is what he's referencing here. So just a warning, we're about to dive into really deep mystery in this scene. Uh, and you'll see what I mean here. Mark 14, we'll pick it up in verse 32. Proving that, that he's experienced the depth of human suffering. This is Jesus, he's entered Jerusalem. He's about to go to the cross. And he's at kind of a crossroads in his mission and his purpose and his identity. Verse 32, they... Um, Jesus and disciples went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Okay, so we find out in other gospels, this was a common practice of Jesus. He would go to this garden after a meal and pray. Um, Now what you see happening here is he uh, sits down the disciples to stay here. But then he brings in who? Peter, James, and John, the inner three. Jesus runs with 12, and inside those, he has this inner core group of three. He brings them with him. He says, keep walking with me further into the garden. As he's walking, he gets greatly distressed and troubled. He's starting to get shaken a little bit. He's starting to get overwhelmed. His heart's beating a little bit faster. His thoughts are racing in his mind. He's a little confused. He's not sure what's about to happen. And then verse 34, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, 
even to death, remain here and watch. Okay, there's a couple things happening here. One, you can't downplay here what Jesus himself says. So what often we do is we import Jesus' godness into the Gospels, which are very human stories. Um, and, and I think maybe we miss out on some of his human life in that sense, fully human, fully God. Jesus here just said this to his disciples. I'm overwhelmed, and it feels like death is right on top of me. I don't know if I'll survive this feeling. don't know if I want to. My soul is very sorrowful to the point of death. So maybe this is something that you have to experience to understand. But the point in your life where you sit down and everything around you feels dark and you have nowhere else to go and you're so overwhelmed and you say, is this it? I mean, will I even survive this oppression? Do I want to survive this? And then catch us what he does here. He, he turns to Peter, James, and John. And he does something very significant. He says, remain here and watch. The implication being, pray for me. Watch is another way to, to say pray. Now, Jesus often is going to pray throughout the Gospels. Not as often will he ask for prayer. He turns to Peter, James, and John, who obviously have to know something's up. He says, pray for me. My inner three, my core group, pray for me. So then he goes to the Father in prayer. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found him sleeping, them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Poor Peter. I mean, they're all three sleeping, but he calls out Peter. Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter in temptation, that spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping. Their eyes were heavy. I guess that was their excuse. They did not know what to answer him. And he, he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed. Um, so, one, the disciples get a bad rap here. And they should, um, I mean, they should know something's up. Something significant is happening. They, they should stay awake. Um, but what you, I mean, Passover at this time could often involve like four to five glasses of wine. Um, and so despite what you may have been told, um, wine at this point had alcohol in it, uh, which is why it's like don't get drunk on wine. Uh, you don't have grape juice and get just real like out of control. Um, the party doesn't happen when the grape juice enters. Um, so four glasses of wine, and I don't know about you, um, if I have one or two glasses of wine, I mean, I'm tired. Not that I drink wine because I don't. Um, but, that was a joke. Some of you are like, I'm lost here now. So, <laughs> it's okay, moderation. Um, but, but it makes you tired. I get tired. So, what could be happening here is they've had four or five glasses of wine. I mean, at that point, it's hard to keep your eyes open. They're in the middle of this garden. It's nighttime. There's no one around them. So, maybe they have a little bit of an out here. Still, I don't think that much. Um, Jesus asked them to pray for him. He's, other Gospels would tell us at this point, he's sweating drops of blood. Uh, which science would tell us is, is a medical phenomena that happens when you're so overwhelmed with stress. So what's happening here? Jesus, he, he begs the Father, I don't want to do it this way. And he comes back and talks to his boys. And he goes back and says, I don't want to do it this way. And then he goes and talks to Peter, James, and John. And he comes back and goes, Father, I don't want to do it this way. At this moment... Every cell in Jesus' body, down to the sweats, droplets of blood coming out of his body, 
every cell is screaming at him, no, do not go there. Do not, I do not want to follow this. I do not want to go with this. Let's get out of here. Let's leave. I think at this point he is experiencing. So what you see is after he ends up, his prayer turns from my will to your will, which I think is a great model for us. Oftentimes we wrestle with God in prayer and we, we ask boldly, which we should. And we say, Lord, please give me this. Please do this in my life. Do this, do this, do this. But then often sometimes the best answer to prayer is really just our will being molded into his. Where eventually we, we stop asking and we go, your will, your will be done. But he's begging God. He says, I don't want to do it this way. Now this moment, after this, he, he kind of faces the crucifixion with, with courage and bravery. But in this moment, you see him almost breaking down. Finding some resolve before the battle. And he's experiencing in this moment the deepest darkness of human temptation to walk away from what God has commanded from us. And so the scriptures say he, he sympathizes with us. He sympathizes. He he knows. And, and so we talked about last week, the difference between Jesus and us is that Jesus doesn't actually fall. And, and we spent some time on this, which is actually good news for us. You and I, I, me, I'm in the garden. Five minutes into it, I say, Lord, I don't want this to happen. I walk out of the garden. I take the first camel out of Jerusalem. I'm out of there. Jesus prays for an hour, talks to his boys prays for an hour, talks to his voice, prays for an hour. In a real sense, I would have known nothing about what this suffering was like. He goes all the way through it. And the scriptures say he sympathizes. So when you and I come to him with failures and problems and weaknesses, he's not looking at us going, come on, man. I'm at sin in, in forever. He's going, I know. I know what it feels like. It's even worse than you can imagine. I love you. I've overcome it. I'm offering this gift to you. If you keep reading here, and back to Hebrews, verse 8. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. In a way, it seems like he's saying here that suffering was vital to his role as the son priest. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. So there's some things that you have to kind of experience to know. And he's saying that human suffering, obedience is not a theory to Jesus. It's not an idea in his mind. It's a flesh and blood lived out reality that he has walked through. And that even though he was the son of God, even though he had that status, he had that title, he came to the depth and misery that is the human condition in sin and walked through it, experienced it. Although he was son, he learned obedience by what he suffered. If you keep reading... Verse 9, he was made perfect. And we think, was Jesus ever not perfect? Well, the, the Greek word here is, is more he was completed. He got to where he was going. He is now able to do his role. He has experienced and accomplished what he needed to experience and accomplish. He's been completed in his task. He's been made perfect. And then in verse 9, he becomes the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. As the high priest, he now holds and offers salvation. So just like this old priesthood when it was working correctly, that priest was an instrument of salvation. So now Jesus perfectly holds and offers out salvation. Again, not some church drunk drawer term, but men and women like you and I who struggle with darkness and sin, addictions and problems, relationship issues, now find healing and hope and forgiveness and reconciliation in Him. 
that the problems that I have in the past aren't the problems that will define me in the future. That what haunts me won't always haunt me. That I can learn and grow to love and worship God and love the people around me. Salvation, working out because of who Jesus is and what he now does for me, in me, and through me. So, I think we, we said last week, Jesus is the fountain of grace, a perfect fountain of grace for us. Um, what, what he's getting at here is that God's deepest promises, his deepest, deepest promises of good are now found in Jesus. So from the very beginning of creation, as God comes to us and says, all that you are looking for, all of it, I'm desiring to bring to you. Peace. Walk with me. No, so God comes and says, you were not created to be and live under the tyranny of death or pain or tears. And Revelation says, all those things are gone in my new creation. And the scripture saying, now all of that, all of God's promises, all of his desires for creation is now centered in and held firmly in who Jesus is and what he's doing for us. And now catch at the end of verse 9, who finds this? Who gets to tap into the source of eternal salvation? All those who obey him. This eternal life, it's, it's found by those who follow him. Now, obedience has gotten kind of a bad reputation, um, particularly in the church world. Um, just the idea and where you see it in scripture and, and in verses like this, there's a couple of reasons for that. One is just kind of the era we live in. Um, we all kind of have authority problems. Um, so this is the very postmodern. I mean, this is the atmosphere that we live in. Don't tell us what to do. Just obeying itself is not a concept we want to, to know. It's not a concept we want to experience. I'll tell you what to do. You obey. I'll do what I want to do. The second reason is because we've been, most of us, I think, have been trained from very early age to shy away from anything that sounds like works righteousness or that we're somehow earning our salvation. So we see a verse like this, that eternal life is given to those who obey him. We go, whoa, whoa, whoa we're not earning. The obedience doesn't have any kind of direct effect on our salvation. Um, we don't want to obey. I mean, all these things are kind of pushing against this idea. But the scriptures over and over again, you have phrases like this. In the scriptures, obedience is not seen in this light. These are concepts that we import into the scriptures. Obedience is seen as this really good thing, this beautiful thing. This thing that, that leads us to the promised land that leads us to God's promises, that leads us to his goodness for us. Obedience in scriptures is, is really an invitation into life. It's an invitation into life. And we need to learn this. We need to let our imaginations be shaped by this. So when the scriptures tell us, do this, go here, say this, don't do this, this isn't some cosmic killjoy in the sky. This is God leading us into what is good, leading us into rest, leading us into wholeness. That's why the Hebrews would write a psalm, 119, a love song about the law. His commands are my life. They're perfect. They're good. They're what I find my joy in. Because they understood this. His commands, they're not burdensome, First John would say. They lead us into victory. So, what, what I'm having to learn as a pastor, sometimes when I'm sitting down in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, I almost feel apologetic for having to tell people what the scriptures command of them. Um, in the sense that, as a pastor, man, I don't want to burden anyone's life more than it is. Uh, and so I never want to put on somebody something that's going to make their life harder, more difficult, more complicated, things like that. And oftentimes, initially, that's what it seems like some of the commands of scripture do. 
address this, face this, forgive this, get over this, um, live like this, don't do this, stop going there. Um, and so it seems like kind of this burden. And I'm having to have my imagination shaped and, and seeing that, that, that the commands, I mean, they're good. They're good commands. We don't need to apologize for sharing them. It's a privilege. It's a joy. It's a good thing. You know, I don't need to shy away from obedience. It's a good thing. So what if repentance? So, like, obedience, repent has the same bad rap. Uh, so you, I mean, turn on TV, there's a street preacher in New York saying repent or go to hell. And it's seen as this threat. But what if when Jesus comes on the scene and says repent, the kingdom of God is at hand, it's not a threat, but an offer. What if it's him saying, follow me into life. Follow me into the kingdom of God. What if it's not some backhanded threat? What if it's him pleading with us to find what he's offering us? Repent. Walk away from that. Come find in me a fountain of grace, eternal salvation for those who would obey, for those who would, who would follow. And as we keep reading here, verse 10. Being designated by God's by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so he um, brings up Melchizedek again. Um, and so we'll see throughout the next few chapters, this verse, Psalm 110, verse 4, talking about Melchizedek, is very, very, very important to the author of Hebrews and to how he understands who Jesus is. Um, first, he, he's saying here that while there's some similarities between Jesus and the old priesthood, Jesus is much greater than the old priesthood. So one way, we'll see this in chapter 7, is Jesus doesn't sin. So he doesn't have to offer sacrifices for his own sins. The old priest had to do that. Um, the old priest died constantly. I mean, it was like a, it was crazy. They would all die over and over and over again. There'd never be a new one. He doesn't die. He is forever offering intercession for us. So there's many ways when Jesus is greater than the old priesthood. One of these, maybe the main one for the author of Hebrews, is the fact that he is called a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Um, the order, the rank. He's a different kind of priest than the priesthood we've been talking about, which we'll call the Levitical priesthood. So Aaron was chosen, one of his sons was Levi, and that was the descendants that the priests found themselves from, the Levitical priesthood. Um, the Melchizedek. We'll get into this in a couple chapters. So we'll go way in depth on Melchizedek. Is a strange figure that we meet in Genesis 14. So before any of this happens, before there's priesthood, any of this, first time in the scriptures you see the word priest. Abraham is journeying. This guy named Melchizedek, king of Salem, translated in Hebrew, king of righteousness. That's what his name means, Melchizedek, king of righteousness. He's the first priest we ever see. He's a priest. He comes up to Abraham. They meet, and Abraham tithes to him. A symbol of humility, of bowing down before him. He tithes to Melchizedek the priest. Now, we know nothing about Melchizedek. Nothing. We don't know where he's from. We don't know how he got where he was. We don't know why he was a priest, what he did as a priest. We don't know what happened to him afterwards. We never hear from him again. He enters the scene in a few verses and exits the scene, never to be heard from again. And the Hebrews were constantly wondering, who is this priest who existed before our priesthood even was around. Who is this priest that Abraham, our father Abraham, tithed to? That's how great he was. And so he will go on to make the argument in Hebrews in chapter 7 mainly um, that as Abraham, this is real brilliant, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. In a sense, 
Levi, Aaron were in Abraham's loins, so they were tithing as well. They were humbling themselves before Melchizedek. So Melchizedek was a higher priest, a greater priest. And then there's this promise in Psalm 110 that Jesus, the king, would be a priest forever like Melchizedek. So here's what's happening at this moment, I think. All of us are going, oh my gosh, what in the world? So often, we said this when we started out Hebrews, often scripture seems like the answer to the question we don't have. I could care less about Melchizedek. I've never in my life wondered who Melchizedek is, what he means for me as a Christian, what he means about Jesus, any of that. And yet here's the scriptures, New Testament, making such a big deal out of it, and just wait, it's going to get way more in depth. He focuses all of this right around this one promise on this one story in the Old Testament, and we seem at a loss. Now there's, there's good news and there's bad news for us. Here's the good news. The good news is that it was confusing to the Hebrews too. So as we'll keep reading, we'll finish out chapter 5. They were a little behind as well. Here's the bad news. Kind of the same scenario. They were a lot closer to the Jewish ideas than we were, than we are. So, I mean, they are Hebrews, and they're a little lost. So it's a little intimidating for us. We're playing major catch-up on them. Um, but he is going to, and here's how you know he's a pastor. He's giving a sermon because he knows his people. He knows what their reaction is going to be to what he's talking about. And then he knows them well enough to rebuke them. And that's what he's going to do here in chapter 5. Because I don't know if you've taught ever, um, but there is this look. If, if you're saying something confusing or you've been teaching for a long time, there's this look of glazed overness in people's eyes. Um, and so that's, the, that's what he's imagining in his congregation as he's talking. He's starting to ramp up on Melchizedek. And he's just going, well, we'll see. 5.11. We'll finish out chapter 5 here. About this we have much to say. And it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained in constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And he says, I want to explain this to you. It's important for you, but you're dull, sluggish. Your mind is working slowly. I can't walk as fast. It's God. He says he loves us. I can't walk as fast as I want to with you. Anyone catch that? There's a text. And I said it was God texting us. He loves us. This Hebrews. He's speaking to us all the time. I want to explain this Melchizedek. And he will. He will. He's going to take about a chapter break. He'll come back to it. But he rebukes his people. He says, your children, you should be adults by now. Your children, you're dull of hearing, and it's slowing down your progress. Now, there is this great lie in the church and in the world, but particularly in the church, that doctrine or truth and life or obedience are somehow exclusive. And so you either choose one or the other, or you focus on one and kind of ignore or don't get as much of the other. The scriptures here and elsewhere are saying that deep Christian truths lead to strength and life. That it's by thinking hard and pressing into the depths of our faith, of who Jesus is, that we find strength and life. That we find what we um, really need in the end. So here's how I can say it to you. Shallow theology, so another church word, um, shallow understanding of who God is, 
what he's done, who Jesus is, what he does for you, who you are. Shallow theology will only sustain you in a shallow life. Catch this. Shallow theology will only sustain you, feed you, take care of you in a shallow life. So if you have the understanding, if your theology is that God is some sort of fairy sprinkling Jesus dust on you, um, answering pretty much all of your whims, uh, just doing good things for you, whether that's health or wealth or whatever it is, job promotions, um, good relationships. Uh, if that's your understanding of who God is. And now you could find verses to support that. You'd have to distort a lot of other verses. Um, while some would maybe teach us and agree to this, it's my understanding that this is a very shallow view of who God is. This is a very shallow view of how he operates to us. Ask Job. Ask Jesus. Ask Peter. Ask Paul. Ask pretty much everybody in the scriptures who didn't get a life like that. So you have this shallow theology. You have this shallow understanding of who God is. But what happens to you when you're in a doctor's office and they tell you you have cancer? What happens to you when your marriage starts to break down? What happens to you when someone close to you dies? Is that understanding going to sustain you through that? Are you not going to fumble? Are you not going to falter there? He's saying here, if you want to experience, if you want to really be obedient and live the Christian life, you're going to need to press into deep, deep truths. He's saying here that there's, there's no place in the church for lazy thinking. There's no place in our faith for lazy thinking. For trying to, to take the easy way and reduce everything down to four principles that all start with the same letter and that you can memorize and sing in a song to first graders. <coughs> that's just not here in the faith. That's not helpful to anybody. And so this is, I think, a direct assault on most of American Christianity. Which would say, we want to be tickled, we want our ears to be tickled, and we want 20-minute cliche sermons that are really an expounding on nothing. So... There's still, there's a, there's a large group who would tell me, I've actually talked to, to people who would tell me, um, 20 minutes. You preach for a long 20 minutes, you've lost them, they don't get anything out of it. 20 minutes, nothing too deep, do three points, do an acronym, something cute like that. 20 minutes, you've lost them. Well, here's my problem with that. One is, I just don't agree. Two is, <laughs> so here's what happened to me last night, and, or two nights ago, Friday night. I'm at a youth event. Um, follow me on this. Teenagers. 14 and 15-year-olds, so do we have the demographic in our minds? 14 and 15-year-olds sat down and for three hours did not talk, did not move, watched a movie. Three hours. So don't tell me that I can't preach for more than 20 minutes. When people stop watching TV, I'll believe that. I sit down and watch House all the time. That's 40 minutes right there. <laughs> So here's what happens. If you can't, and I used to, um, when Adam was, me and Adam were kind of learning how to preach together, we, we'd give each other tips and I would always tell them, you know, if you've lost people after 20 minutes, it's not because they don't have the attention span. It's because you're doing a bad job. Because you either don't know what you're talking about or you're not convincing enough. You're not entertaining enough in the sense that people will watch something they can follow and understand that means something to them, like a movie or a story. So there's also this confusion in the Christendom that what we're doing here this morning, like who, an hour or hour and a half, however long it is, this morning, what is it for? Is it for primarily believers or for primarily unbelievers? And you've got some terminology confusion here. Um, so there are some who would say, 
Um, Sunday morning needs to be evangelistic, aimed at unbelievers. Um, that's the church's purpose. Seek and save what is lost. Jesus' mission. And others would say Sunday morning is for the edification of the believers. We recharge, we grow, we encourage each other, and then we go out into the world. Well, here's the confusion here. One is, this is not church. Never has been, never will be. This hour on Sunday morning is not church. You're the church, and you're the church, and you're the church, and I'm the church. So yes, the church's mission is to seek and save what is lost. The same as Jesus' mission. We're invited into that. Sunday morning, historically and scripturally, is a time where believers come together and are built up, are edified. So when I'm up here preaching, I'm preaching to believers with the understanding that there may be unbelievers in the crowd. And I'm preaching to build you up so that you may go be the church on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. And there's also, I mean, you get into the issues of, does deep worship discourage evangelism? So is someone going to come in here and be put off by the fact that we really love Jesus and are really following with all of our minds, all of our hearts, all of our energy? Like, am I going to walk into a household of a married couple and, and they're just going to be so complimentary of each other and so loving, and I'm be like, this is gross. I never yeah. want to have that support system in my life. I never want to have that kind of love going back and forth from me and another human being. Or am I going to be attracted to that? Am I going to go, I want that in my life. I want a relationship like that. I mean, there's all this confusion here. But he's saying here, the, the Christian right, there's no, there's, no, there's no point, there's no place here for laziness, for shallow thinking. And so he's going to say this. He's, he's going to say your children. Your children, you need to be adults. He says, you, you need to grow up and become faith adults. You need to grow up and become faith adults. So here's, here's the analogy he uses. You're drinking milk, and you need to be drinking solid food. So the progression in a baby's life, you're born, for a while you get fed. Um, eventually, hopefully, you start learning how to feed yourself. You feed yourself for a while, and then hopefully, cycle of life goes around, and before long, you're feeding another child. I mean, there's this whole little circle of life. He's saying, you're a 40-year-old man sucking on a bottle. What, what's wrong with the situation? He's saying, you're in a Christian congregation. You've heard the truths. You've been following God. And you want me to come and tell you stupid, trivial things that anybody could think of off the streets? You don't want to dive into the scriptures. You don't want to dive into the ancient promises of God in Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 and understand really who Jesus is. He's going, your children, you're on milk. You need to be on solid food. So here's another example I can give you. So last night, there was a two-night youth event thing I was at. Last night, there was, uh, they did a foot washing thing after uh, the worship time, which is my favorite little Christian thing that Christians do. Um, and so I get it from John 13, and I get the purpose, and I get it. Does it. But it's just an awkward time for everybody. Um, and so it just amuses me. It tickles me. Um, and so I'm, I'm there, and, and the, I mean, it's high schoolers, and they're washing each other's feet, and there's kind of like some adults are getting in there, and like a couple kids are like looking at me like, am I going to get on it? And I'm like, I'm not. Look, man, I have been taught... So I have a list of things not to do at a youth event. And one of them is to touch kids' feet. Uh, so I'm okay. I'll stand here. Y'all enjoy the foot washing ceremony. Um, here's what he's saying here. He's saying here at a certain point, you need to call the authorities if there's a 55-year-old swimming in the kiddie pool. It's creepy. Unless he has a kid with him, get out of the kiddie pool. Get in the deep end. He's saying, this is what's happening here. You've got, so the New Testament, I think, would shudder at the idea that there could be a congregation of Christians who come together and come together and come together and then never move on to real deep, sustaining truths, who never really dive into the intricacies and complexities of who Christ is and what he's done. 
who never really, as we'll see, live out their faith in a deep way. He's saying, you're, you're children on milk. You're old men swimming in kiddie pools. This is not right. Grow up. Become faith adults. So he gives us some, some characteristics of mature Christians. The first is they think right. They have this power of discernment. They've thought through the gospel. They've thought through what it means for them, for the people around them, for the community that they live in. The second one is they act right. So they have distinguished what's good and what's evil. Righteousness, the word of righteousness. What justice and peace and mercy and love those things look like in their life. And then here's a huge one here in this text. They pass on their faith. He says, you got to catch this. He, he's looking at them. He says, you should be teaching this to other people. You're getting confused as I'm talking about Melchizedek. This is what he's saying. He's saying, you should be teaching others. I shouldn't be rehearsing this with you. Again, I think the New Testament would cringe at the idea that men and women could go to church, go to services, be in the church, be part of the church for 15 years without ever once reproducing their faith in somebody else. Um, without ever... So, I mean, here's just the... And I know I'm not dogging on anybody. This is the culture we live in. This is how we grow up. This is the church environment that we exist in where we come and we are fed and fed and fed. And one, most of us never learn how to feed ourselves. So you can't sit down with the scriptures and feed yourself in prayer. And then two, almost none of us ever end up feeding other people. And he's saying, think out here, your Christian life here. You're stunned at this infant phase, and it's embarrassing to you and everybody. He's saying, grow up. You should be teaching people by now. So here's what I would say. The difference between you and I is not as great as I think you think it is. So, yeah, I have a little bit of training. Went to school. Um, I have a little bit of speaking skill, just like a knack for it. Um, but here's what I read. I read the scriptures. I pray that God would tell me what they mean. And I read books about the scriptures by men and women I trust and historically have stood the test of faith. And God reveals it to me. But there's nothing that special about me up here teaching you. You should be sharing. You should be taking the gospel to your communities, to the people around you. You should be reproducing this in the people around you. And so, so this is almost like a checkpoint. What happens in your mind as we start getting into, um, so I'm not going to call anybody out, but I can see it on some of your faces. We're getting into Melchizedek, and it's just like, what in the world? This is so pointless. Here's what Hebrews is saying. It's not pointless. There's no deep truth that you could learn that won't, in reality, deeply affect you and allow you to be sustained and endure in all that life offers you. Eventually, eventually you have to graduate. Eventually, you have to move up in the chains. And why not now, he says? This is not much holding you back other than you. Teach. Reproduce. Think these things through. Act on them. See them out in, in other people's lives. So here's what we're going to do. We're, we're going to take a break from Hebrews. We're going to jump back in. In chapter 6, he's going to continue this kind of thought of that you and I need to be mature and to think through things deeply. And then he'll jump right back into this discussion of Melchizedek. So we'll take a little break. We'll come back to it. We're ready. So here's what we did this morning. These are some deep waters. We got our toes in the water. We kind of felt it out. Safe. We can get in. We can swim around. We can feel it out. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back and jump in. So for now, here's what we've got. We've got a feast laid out for us to worship. These are high priests. 
all of God's promises are true in him. If we would follow him and run near to him, we could find healing, forgiveness, wholeness, peace, justice, mercy, grace, the things that we desperately, desperately thirst for. So let's run, let's draw near, let's follow him. And then two, let's keep maturing. Let's not get stagnant in our faith or our understanding. Let's not pretend that intellectually pursuing Jesus is different from emotionally or physically pursuing Jesus. Let's worship in the scripture with all of our mind, with all of our heart, with all of our soul. Let's press on. Let's think deeper. Let us find as we grow that there's one who's an eternal source of salvation. He won't run out. There's not going to be a day where we, we stop learning. There's not going to be a day where we sit back and go, I'm, I'm done. Even, I think, in eternity, it's like waves. Every day, every moment, we're, we're hit with more of his beauty, with more of his glory, with more of just what it means that he would take a broken, messed up individual like me and like you and say to us, you're mine. Despite what you think, despite how you feel at times, despite all the shortcomings and all the circumstances that tell you differently, you are mine. This is the church. This is my body of people. Whether you can see it or not, I'm forming you, transforming you, making you new. And so we worship and we press on. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you again for our time this morning. I thank you for the scriptures given to us in Hebrews. I pray as we take a break that you would bless our time in other parts of the scriptures. And then as we jump back into Hebrews, uh, we would continue learning and growing in our faith and in who you are and what you've done for us. Just be with us. We need you. Um, I mean, there's so many different temptations. It's easy to talk a big game here on Sunday and it's hard to go live it out in the week. Teach us the daily, repetitive, deep acts of prayer community uh, where we follow you and then slowly but surely are transformed into your image. We love you. We need you. We thank you for your son, our great high priest. It's in his name we pray. Amen.